Are y'all ready to get? Are y'all ready to get started? I got I got vegan chicken nuggets. I gotta cook after this. Fucking vegans. This is why Republicans hate us. We're elitist. Eating eating vegan chicken nuggets and using bidets. Hot pot of the south, not your daddy's Appalachia. Hot pot of the south, progress cannot wait. Hello everyone and welcome to Pot of the South, a production of Change Tennessee. Pull up a chair and refill your sweet tea as we pull back the layers of southern politics to get a better understanding of what's going on and why it matters. My name is Gabe, and I'm joined by our host and Change Tennessee co-founders, Matthew Park and Drew Dyson. I'm Drew Dyson. And I'm Matthew Park. And today, we are joined by a very special guest, the Cardinal of Indivisible Tennessee and Chair of the Blunt County Democratic Party, Nathan Higdon. Thank you for joining us today, Nathan. Thanks for having me. So, Nathan... Can you tell us a little bit about what you do with Indivisible Tennessee and then also as the chair of the Democratic Party for Blunt County? Sure. So I'll start with the party uh, as uh, technically I'm the acting chair, but I should be voted in in about two weeks to officially be the chair. And with that, I have one real role, and that is to elect Democrats. Outside of that, everything else is icing on the cake. It's a lot of constituent service work. engagement, strategic planning, and grassroots organizing. And with Indivisible Tennessee, we do a lot of the same things. It's quote-unquote nonpartisan, but it was originally set up to be against the Trump agenda, and we've just moved it on to a state level. And so we're fighting against the Governor Bill Lee agenda now. This week, we're going to discuss something with major implications, but goes unnoticed a lot, and that is gerrymandering. But before we dig in, let's take a quick break. Uh, talk about uh, the actual topic we're discussing today, which is redistricting and gerrymandering. Uh, so if you are not familiar, we just got done with a census year in 2020, uh, where they tried their best to uh, count as many people as possible, unless you're the Trump administration and you try and count as few people as possible. That was also the first census to be done uh, this year, this year or last year census was the first one to be done primarily online. Yeah, it is. I worked, I worked in the 2010 census. I was supervisor for uh, uh, most of the East Tennessee area and it was all knocking on doors. I think I had more guns pulled on me with census than I did (laughs) canvassing for Democrats. So it's trade-off. Well, for those that aren't familiar, the census takes place on every year that ends with a zero. So every 10 years, uh, this is delegated by the Constitution in Article 1, Section 2. The entire process of what the uh, census is supposed to do is for an apportionment of representatives in Congress. Uh, This has also trickled down into how state works as well. So now that we've taken the census, um, it's going to help us reapportion 
Congress and uh, the various state level legislatures as well. Um, so we want to get into, before we jump into what redistricting is going to look like, we want to talk about gerrymandering. And uh, so strap in your seatbelts. I got a fun little history tidbit for you here. Uh, so for your fun little history lesson on gerrymandering, uh, this was a coin term in 1812 by the Federalist Party in Boston, Massachusetts. And it was against then Governor Elbridge Jerry. Um, what a name. Elbridge Jerry did not like the Federalist at all. He was a Democratic Republican governor of the state. And at that time, his party had attained a majority in the state legislature. However, in the state Senate, they uh, wanted to secure their majority in there. So Governor Jerry decided that he was going to have them redraw the lines in these crazy shapes. Uh, at the time, uh, these wouldn't be considered the, the craziest of shapes because in Massachusetts, you were supposed to follow county lines, but he did away with that. So, of course, in the following election, the Democratic Republicans won heavily in what was a favored uh, state Senate that used to be for Federalists. And this is where we get the modern term for gerrymandering, and it's morphed into this leviathan of a monster that we have today in which Republicans continue to use as a power grab tool to disenfranchise thousands and thousands of voters throughout this country. Like the principles of gerrymandering, right? Like uh, the things that that they use uh, to gerrymander today. And I'll, I'll call this districting. Uh, gerrymandering is the using of redistricting to obtain some sort of partisan advantage or obtain an advantage against a particular group. So right now, redistricting requires, in Tennessee, requires compactness, uh, right? It favors counties. It requires uh, contiguity. It requires whenever, whenever you can preservation of the county. Uh, it, uh, and I don't think that we have rules on preservation of communities of interest in Tennessee. And it avoids uh, pairing prior incumbents. Is that a rule in Tennessee? Drew? From what I've seen, there's very few actual rules that go along with redistricting from state to state. Um, there's kind of guidance in terms of like, this is what's more followed. Um, actually, the Indivisible National page has a really good um, kind of website explaining redistricting and how uh, these work. Um, but it, it varies from state to state. So Arizona's constitution has a rule on competitiveness. So it says, and I quote, to the extent practicable, competitive districts should be favored where to do so would create no significant significant detriment to the other goals. So they're, you know, they can get around that for sure, but it's saying, hey, we should make competitive districts. California and Montana both prohibit using partisan data. So Iowa requires nonpartisan staff and others are prohibited from using incumbent residences, election results, party registration, other socioeconomic data as input when redrawing the district. So that's pretty interesting. And that's something that I think is kind of awesome. Uh, but other states prohibit favoring or disfavoring an incumbent candidate or party. We have almost none of those rules here in the South. It's kind of 
assumed that whoever's in power is going to draw the map to keep themselves in power. I think it was Justice Kagan who said that 2010 was the worst year for gerrymandering ever. And with technology the way it is, 2020 is only going to be worse. Or the 2020 gerrymandering cycle. I am glad you brought up Elena Kagan. Let's talk about a court case real fast that makes a little bit more sense to what we're talking about. Um, So in... 2019, we referenced this last episode in Rucho v. Common Cause. This was a court case that decided that basically in the nature of itself, that gerrymandering was too political for the court to decide basically how to go about defining what was a political gerrymandering and basically sent it back to the states. But Kagan dissented in that, which, of course, this was a five to four decision at the time, and, you know, basically said that the court had sidestepped its duty to protect voters. Um, She said this encourages a politics of polarization and dysfunction, and I think that's something that we've seen exacerbated in these last 10 years due to Project Red Map, which if you're not familiar, was the uh, tools that Republican used to basically take control of state legislatures in 2010 and basically redistrict the hell out of them for the last 10 years. Nathan, and I, I want to kind of turn it to you because Indivisible arose after you know the 2016 election, but it was born out of a similar idea that we needed to kind of take back power. We needed to find out how to win again. So I want to know in your eyes what these last 10 years of hyper-partisan gerrymandering has done, not just to the South, but to this whole country. You, We can look locally at what it's done. Like here in Blount County, uh, we have 21 county commissioners, 21, and uh, but it was 42 up until about a decade ago. So obviously nothing got done. But so now that we're down to 21, even at that, what it has done is this packing or cracking of districts, depending on, you know, break apart anything that's remotely blue and packing in to keep them red if we're keeping it bipartisan here. What we've seen over the last decade is that they have either packed or cracked folks into districts so that it made it virtually impossible, even if every progressive-minded person turned out to vote, it was still just not likely that we could get somebody who wasn't for the red team taking the red pill in office. So those are the things we've been up against, you know, slowly. And there's so many organizations who are are doing this kind of uh, grassroots work. And now here we are butted up against, what is it to be, uh, the data released on April 1st. So what, like two and a half months or so? And we're going to have this, and then we have these issues. It depends on what level you're talking about for redistricting. Like on the county level for redistricting our county commission districts, there was uh, a commission, or or, sorry, a committee that was made with the Blount County Commission, but they have the latitude of either just allowing it to be members of the Blount County Commission, or you can invite experts or outside people. I doubt that it's any stretch for me to get you to believe that despite fighting to get on this committee, there was a snowball's chance in hell that I was ever going to get on it. So guess who's not on that committee to help redistrict Blount County? That would be me. And so on a county level, we can't get any change. Then we get to the state level because, you know, Tennessee 
it's passed by the General Assembly by a simple majority veto override vote, so we can't make any changes on a state level. So then here we are stuck from local all the way up to Nashville with a train wreck. Kind of, there's there's your answer. It, the problem over the last 10 years, and we see it played out, is it is from your local level all the way to federal. And we see these hideous districts like in Texas, where they're, they're almost little salamandry looking thing that spans halfway down the state to connect uh, between the two cities to keep it red. You guys have mentioned packing and cracking. Let's take a look at what that is. But first, let's take a quick break, sponsored by the puppet master, Charles Koch. Cracking, packing, fracking, these simple rhyming words are also some of Charles Koch's favorite ventures. These three activities guarantee nothing stands in the way of Charles Koch and his massive empire. You can vote, it just won't matter. That's the Koch way. <laughs> yeah, so uh, to quickly kind of define the uh, different types and methods of uh, gerrymandering, um, we, we've used these terms a little bit already, but packing is basically putting members of one specific party into a single district. So you can think of this a lot of times when you look at cities. Cities are often like they compact as many or pack as many people into those districts as possible um, to lessen their effect outside of those districts. Uh, the other one is cracking. So that's breaking up potential voting blocks to make sure they cannot get a majority anywhere. You see that also in cities as well, where they'll cut through specific parts and neighborhoods of cities to kind of lessen the democratic impact that they'll have and put them with majority red suburbs. Um, that's that's one of the issues that I know Nashville faced in the state Senate, and we finally won that state Senate seat. That's something else that we've seen in a state Senate District 7 here in Knox County, which uh, stretches from one end of the county to the other in quite a fashion. Um, but uh, so you have packing, you have cracking. And another one uh, that is kind of a consensus from both sides is incumbent protection. So because a lot of times incumbents are the ones that are drawing their lines, they, you know, come together and they say, okay, we're going to draw this to basically where you're safe. Um, it's an understanding between both parties that, you know, we're going to protect ourselves. So you see that sometimes within certain states. Um, that one is is still mainly used by whichever party's in favor. The key thing for us, one of the problems, is that we don't know how to redistrict without bias. We, we don't know what good, fair districts. We haven't agreed on it. Technology can draw amazing districts right now. It just needs to be told what to do. Right now it's being told to draw hyper-partisan, no-competition districts as widely as possible, but maybe leave a little room for like maybe 20% of the seats to go to the other party so it looks like there's a, at least a two-party system going on when really one party holds a supermajority and the other party could just be locked outside and, and has no power and has no voice. And yeah, it almost sounds like I was describing state legislatures across the South. So the key is we have to tell it what to do. 
And here's a question. Do we say we want competitive districts across the board? Every district should be 50-50 and it's an exciting free-for-all every two years. Do we say we're not going to use partisan data and we're going to take what we get? Do we say that, hey, we're going to follow whatever the statewide vote proportion is? So at least one state does that. Uh, they, they gerrymander it to intentionally be what the statewide vote proportion is. So if the governor gets 60% and is one party and the other 40% is another party, then those same proportions will be how they gerrymander the districts in the legislature. Interesting. I don't think that that's fair, right? So the question is, how do we draw districts? Do we draw them by communities of interest, right? Do we say, hey, South Knoxville is a weird place. You know, Drew told me one time he feels like he needs a passport to go to South Knoxville. So maybe we say South Knoxville's got its own thing going on. They get a state house rep or they get a county commissioner because it's a community of interest. Do we say, I, I forget what that city in Florida is called that has every member of the city council's LGBT, uh, uh, Wilton Manors. So do we say Wil Wilton Manors, we're going to draw a line around that because there needs to be a gay person from Wilton Manors in the state legislature in Florida, a community of interest, right? Do we say, you know, how, how are we going to do this? Do we say we're going to draw districts over here in rural Appalachia? So we make sure the rural Appalachian people are well represented. Do we say, hey, we're going to we're going to draw, you know, lines around the river people because the river people in middle Tennessee need to be represented. I'm asking that question to you guys like that's on this podcast. Nathan, Gabe, Drew, what what inputs do you want? How do you want districts to be drawn? What's the criteria that you I think the easiest way and, and possibly the most attainable going forward is, is doing independent redistricting commissions. I don't I don't agree because those that's a that's a method of how to do it. It's not an input of what they're shooting for. So if you don't give these people criteria, they're going to default back to, oh, maybe we should just go to something proportional. Right. We have to tell them as a society, this is how we want districts drawn. They can, you know, independent commissions important for doing the drawing but but we have to we talk about that a lot like it's a silver bullet and it's not we have to say here's the criteria we want districts drawn on and that's the thing we're not talking nearly enough about let me give you an idea let, let me let me let me think let's think about this as like a crazy innovative thing right what if we took happiness scores across the state right just surveys across the state See who's happy with their, you know, their standard of living and, and what's going on in their state, their system of government and what they believe, you know, and use technology to sort of draw out these voices that say, hey, I'm not happy. I'm not being represented and draw out those voices every 10 years and pull them up to the forefront. We're so used to it being a political party. It's hard to think of it being anything else. I like the idea of bringing the districts more in line with how they are. I don't think a happiness survey is very feasible. I mean, as we've seen with the vaccine distribution uh, across the state level, it's just been a mess all over the place. And then also, Nathan, what you were saying, you know, getting a gun pulled on you, working the census. So I don't think, you know, trying to do a survey type approach to it is very feasible but i do think you need to create these districts based on similarities like you were saying matthew the technology is there we can build 
real districts that actually reflect the population that lives there. And that's how we need to approach it. That's a good point, Matt, because it doesn't matter if it's the state legislature or independent commission or, you know, all, all of our favorite pets. If they're not given boundaries, they're probably going to default to what they know the easy, which is going to be something similar to what it's always been. It's kind of punting your question. I'm not exactly sure what I would want in a perfect world. Well, so clearly we have no idea how we want to. We think the district should be redrawn because they do not lend themselves to be very indicative of the population. So what about the number of... Who says we have to keep the amount of representatives we have? Why can't we increase the number and then people can have more of a voice there's more representation uh did you know that you know these overlords that we call the founding fathers uh james madison came up with a mathematical formula as to how to calculate the number of representatives in congress do you know what if we followed that what it would be today like forty thousand, six thousand people so why not I definitely think there needs to be more members of Congress. We're just a much bigger country than what we were. And 425 is not a, a number set in stone. Um, I think we need to... 435. I'm, I'm getting rid of the 10 or so that I don't like. We'll start with Tennessee. Take your pick. Just 10 of them? Just 10. We're just starting with 10. We're just starting with 10, okay? Well, no. Why, why in, today's, in today's age... We're in an innovative time. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It's a perfect time to say, you know what? We're no longer going to, at least the at least the House of Representatives, we're no longer going to ask them to travel to D.C. They're going to stay in their districts and work their ass off and serve the people of their districts. And they're going to call in on Zoom and vote. Because that was the point of the lower house anyway. It was supposed to be people of the people who were really representing the folks back in the district. I I could kind of agree with you on this, Matt, that what do they need to be there for? Someone like Tim Burchett here, what is he doing in the minority party in D.C. other than, I don't know, building up his corporate interests for whenever he finally gets kicked out of office? Yeah, zoom it. I mean, that's what, that's what it is, right? Like, I can see... You know, the, the, you can make a case to me for taking the Senate to D.C. You know, they're supposed to be the upper deliberative house. They're supposed to be, you know, generally older people. Fine, whatever. Uh, but the House of Representatives, why do they need to be in D.C.? Let's use James Madison's formula. What is it, one representative for every 10,000 or 50,000 people, if I'm remembering right? I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't remember what those crazy men talk about. Like, let's use that. Let's uncap the number of members in Congress. Y'all have all watched Star Wars, right? That was the like, galactic Look how many representatives Senate. they had now. Granted, they were running a galactic federation. If I had to deal with the people of Coruscant on a daily basis, I would probably, you know, start the Galactic Empire myself. But I'd move that <laughs> somewhere else. Those people were crazy. And then the Kaminoans, like, man... <laughs> We're getting deep into Star Wars stuff here, but but the politics of Star Wars is crazy and probably much more sane than current politics in America. Is that your favorite political drama, Drew? 
Uh, yes, yes, it is. And if you do not see Star Wars as a political drama, um, then I'm sorry. You're just you're just not understanding the deep metaphors of that that was put out in front of us. So something to think about. I think that there's a strong possibility in the next four years we could actually see a push for DC statehood. So how's this going to affect? We're going to have to already increase the number of people. There's something to be said for uh, Puerto Rico, maybe Guam as well. In, in the next decade that they could, I mean, bear with me, that they could, if you're going to do DC, why not the others? If- no, Nathan, I want you to know on our first episode, I came out with the uh, controversial opinion that Guam should have statehood. I, you know, why not? Every time I mention DC, I have somebody like, Someone who will be like, well, what about Guam? And I'm like, well, I mean, well, first, what about it? And okay. What about the Federated States of Micronesia? Everything that is a territory should be a state. Uh, this imperialistic society that we live in in America, dominating these people that can vote in presidential primaries, but then can't vote in an American election outside of a primary, uh, they deserve to probably be American Well, they are American citizens. They deserve to uh, be included in the state and have some form of representation as well. Right. And so if we were to include those three, that would increase our number of states by about 8%. If we're doing that big of a, an increase, then it's time to reevaluate some of these other metrics, such as um, how we do redistricting, because it's going to become an issue for these places, despite the fact that they're small. But why not look at it for everyone? Um, I still don't have a good formula for you, Matt. That was a that was a question. I mean, it's like getting know. back to the gerrymandering thing. Like, wh- what is what is the appropriate formula? And I would I would propose a solution that may sort of tie in with your new statehood thing is I think we should dissolve all the state boundaries and redraw them and redraw them around uh, the city states right the the major urban centers with some rural population then those areas are represented in Congress rather than right now we have states that carry some separation of, of population and urban centers. Right now, we've got the urban centers that are going to be there and grow. If a city's over 100,000 people right now, the odds are that that's going to turn into a ghost town. Pretty slim, I'd say. Anything can happen. Industries can change. But our our economy doesn't, we don't have silver towns anymore. I was I was at a ghost town a few months ago at this, uh, this place called, I think it was called Elk. Elkhorn, Elkhorn, Montana, right? A little ghost town. The only person that lives there is this guy with the big Trump sign in his yard. Smallest state park in Montana, but not an important thing. I think, I think as we as we look, those urban centers are forming. Our society has changed a little bit. Those original, you have to remember, state lines are political lines. Now, I'm a proud Tennessean. Don't get me wrong, but I don't identify with Lake County. Like, I hate to pick on Lake County. What'd Lake County ever do to you? Lake County is beautiful. But how how do I, as a, as a resident of Knoxville, identify with Lake County from a political perspective and from a political boundary perspective? Does it make sense to maintain these state lines as we know them today? Or maybe should we, you know, 
erase a, erase a chalkboard and, and uh, update the things. If they're political boundaries, why not update them? I guess this is why people start wars, isn't it? That little statement. Um, I know my idea was shot down real fast about these, uh, you know, independent redistricting commissions. Call me, call me a realist at what can get done first. Um, I'm not the Elon Musk of redistricting like Matthew is. But uh, so Arizona, California, Colorado and Michigan all use independent redistricting commissions. Every state in the South controls all of their uh, redistricting from the state legislature to um to a Drew, congressional. Drew, do you think an independent redistricting would work in Tennessee? I think if the way it would have to be written, because um, I mean, I believe in, in free and fair elections. I think you need five Democrats and five Republicans to come together and, and draw these lines. What about the independents? So you want a partisan independent redistricting committee? I think we can, I think there's room to say that, hey, we need to have a variety of different opinions, but they have to be equal. We can't have, you know, like six Republicans and five Democrats and three independents. We have to have, like, if we're going to do it that way, four Republicans, four Democrats, four independents. Hell, you want to throw the Green Party into? Let's put four Green Party members in. Let's not forget the Libertarian Party. Let's throw them into. Can we forget about them, though? I try every day. But by God, some libertarian always makes it his problem uh, to, to just tell me what's going on in the world. Why do you not like the libertarians, Drew? Well, you see, I like the FDA. Uh, I like knowing how my food is processed. Uh, libertarians don't. That's a problem I have. Well, you have, to, you have to hand it to a people that are sticking to their, their central belief. You rarely hear a libertarian really like start to budge uh, on on their central beliefs. One one quick thing, I want to I want to revisit something because I, I know we forgot it, and I don't want to leave this. No, it's not the libertarian. It's on statehood. We also have like three hundred and twenty something indigenous peoples tribes that have land in the U.S., and we should probably make serious consideration of how those people are going to be represented in Congress instead of just by a an agency within a department. So I think just throwing that in there for that conversation is that maybe all 326 of those, and and by the way, those are only ones that there are uh, reservation lands for. There's over 500 recognized tribes by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We have we have to think about those sovereign nations of which we are within their borders. You know, letting them and and encouraging them to have representation in Congress, especially in the House of Representatives, since we're making it all on Zoom anyway or on some other provider. We don't have to increase Zoom stock. I'm sure it's on one of Drew's lists of big tech that he wants to break up. We're going to have a conversation about bashing up big tech. And and Matthew, I know that your, uh, your, your boss, Jeff Bezos, is paying you to keep hyping up all these technology firms, but uh, this is a serious conversation. What about your boss, George Soros, Drew? Oh, my boss is George Soros. Uh, he can send checks to uh, our P.O. box. It's P.O. Uh, you can mail me whatever kind of money you want. Whoa, whoa Drew, I'm going to have to stop you there. This show has not accepted any money from Mr. Soros. We are strictly funded through the benevolence of one Mr. Charles Koch. 
Speaking of generous funding, though, were you aware that Mr. Koch spent an estimated $400 million between 2016 and 2018 on politics and policy? Charles Koch, this is Chump Change. So I've been working with various groups and with my own county um, leadership to develop uh, a 10-year plan for this very reason. It is that, I'll even say it out loud, I'm kind of, at least for Blount County, I'm going to acquiesce the state house races because we're not, we're not going to win them in the next 10 years, not in Blount County anyway and not our state Senate seat either. So what we have to do to address this gerrymandering issue, and we'll see how much worse it can get. I mean, I don't know that it can really get much worse here, but after we see the new lines, our focus is going to be at the very bottom of uh, the, the ballot. So we've got to keep our folks energized when they go in to vote. And it's going to be pushing these nonpartisan race, city commission, town alderman, city council, county commission, your county clerk. It's all these people who have to have, well, the, the city, the municipal races often don't, but like the county clerk, the trustee, et cetera, are partisan, ra are partisan races. And I say that not probably that is actually wrong, but I'm fairly certain they're partisan races. We're wanting to start at the bottom so that we can get known quantities of progressive or democratic people running to build this base because what we're going to have to do over this next 10 years, because we can't fight and change the lines. So what we have to do is play within the system we got, and that's to get people elected to slowly break this down. So when we come back in 10 years and we're redrawing county lines, county district lines, we can change it there. And we just start changing it up the channel like I talked earlier. We have to start at the bottom. And I think Matthew said it, this is not glamorous work. If you are looking to become a grassroots organizer and an influencer and famous, maybe you should look for something else because <laughs> political activism is not going to make you famous in East Tennessee. Unless you do it really well or really poorly, then you might get famous. I, I think I think the, the important thing is that people have to know that representation matters. We're not going to get representation this year through district redrawing. It's going to be harder next year to flip seats, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't work at it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't call these people out uh, for their crap that they do. Call them out for the filth that they are. Sorry to interrupt you. Some some people are, yes. Uh, some people are not there to represent you. I, I would argue that only a, a slim, slim margin of any legislative body in the state is full of people that are representing their constituents. I, I stand by that comment. Um, and that's on the that's not just Republicans, by the way. That's Republicans, Democrats, that's that's independents, although I don't know that we have any other than nonpartisan ones. 
you know, I think the first thing that we have to do is, is there's going to be pressure campaigns on state legislatures to do something different, whether that's, you know, creating the Terminator version of redistricting like Matthew wants, or, you know, the more uh, sensible approach of creating an independent redistricting commission. You know, there's various forms that we can take to demand that our state legislatures do something different. But also we control, uh, you know, Congress now. And and we need to actually look at doing something. And H.R. 1 that was passed last year by House Democrats uh, had a provision in there that would establish uh, independent redistricting commissions. We need to bring that back up on the table. That's the first step that we can take. And then we also need to look at the possibility of, I mean, like we talked about earlier, there's no reason that in a country now that has 332 million people that we're still at 435 uh, congressional representatives. I think we should double that number. And that one is going to give us more compact districts that are more adequately reflecting of the population. Members are going to be more upholding to those mem- uh, those uh, constituents, and that's going to just increase the diversity of voices that we have. So I think those are things we have to do. But like Nathan and Matthew both said, this is a long fight ahead of us. We have to put in the work every election cycle, regardless if we know we're going to lose or we're going to win. Uh, that's just the only way there is. I think if 2020 taught us anything compared to 2018, you know, 2018, we saw kind of this blue wave in the house. 2020, we saw that get diminished. Don't underestimate the power of Trump's base and turning out, at least for him. That almost cost us the house and it almost cost us the Senate. But what we need to do also is even as much as we were pushing people out to the polls, even as much as we were organizing, they were still able to nearly match us in a lot of these states. So we have to work at, you know, connecting a progressive message with these kind of moderate or conservative voters that are in rural areas. Uh, We have to try and just do whatever we can to kind of lessen the pain that we're going to feel for the next 10 years, because there's another good chance that they redraw these maps. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose the uh, we're going to lose the House of Representatives. It's it's going to go downhill from there if we can't if we can't at least keep that. So my plea again is that Democrats need to use their power, especially while they have it in whatever way to protect voting rights. And and I think, you know, the first step should be to pass H.R. 1 again. Um, and I think I think they want to rename that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, if I'm correct. Uh, so they, that should be one of the first things that they pass. Here's a question. This is uh, an, an almost an entirely separate conversation, however. I think we've had a couple of those tonight. Yeah, right. What if, as I've been reading, that Trump does spin up the what Patriot Party or MAGA Party or whatever? Do you think the divorce of the uh, Cult Forty Five from uh, the Republican Party would change all this? Or how do you think it would change all this, rather? Oh, I think that opens us up to a lot more districts because you do see such a deep divide within the Republican Party at the moment. If if there was to become kind of a third optimal party that Trump establishes, I think you witness at least 30 to 40 percent of, of that base moving over there and cutting into the current Republican base. Uh, it would be... 
it would be extremely awful for for the Republican Party as it is because our current system is not designed for multiple parties. Uh, so it would just be, <laughs> I mean, it would be great for Democrats. Don't get me wrong. Maybe they'll do that. And maybe we, we won't get complacent, but maybe it'll just be a little bit easier for us. And certain districts for sure would become easier if you're running three candidates like that. Does anyone want to uh, help him find found that so we can maybe win back some more more seats? I mean, <laughs> you know, if they do that, I th- I keep thinking that the more left factions of the Democratic Party might step away. So we might end up going from two to four and then we'll have the Whig Party again. But it'll be W.I.G. and it'll be oh, it, it'll be different this time. It'll be a different Whig. Is that the LGBTQ party? Realistically, though, I think one of the things that we need to consider is the fact that we've outgrown a two-party system. Honestly, a two-party system was never great. The fact that me and Joe Manchin are in the same party, the tent is uh, very, very big and stretches very far to the left. The tent the tent's big enough for two weddings at the same time, and that's too big of a tent. Too big of a tent on that <laughs> end. Oh, God. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think we need to look at we have to, this is another conversation, but we have to look at, uh, you know, changing our, our, the way we do our voting first past the post is not something that works for those that don't know what first past the post is. That basically means whoever gets 50.1 or majority of the votes wins. I've always, I've always thought of first past the post as, as setting up two politicians or a number of politicians out in the street and telling them that hitching post down the way. That's, that's the one that wins the election. So Get on. We have reached our post for this episode. Thank you everyone for tuning in, and thank you again, Nathan, for joining us. Be sure to follow the podcast at pod underscore south on Twitter. You can also find me at Graham851. Drew, Matthew, Nathan, where can people find you on the World Wide Web and stay up to date on all your happenings? They can find me on Twitter at Andrew Dyson, and they can also follow ChangeTN at ChangeTN underscore as well. They can follow me on Twitter at Matthew R. Park. With me on all the socials at J. Nathan Higdon. And for Indivisible, uh, it's at Indivisible Tennessee. Hot pot of the South, not your daddy's Appalachia. Hot pot of the South, progress cannot wait.